Hey pals, this is Blaine Hill, the Associate Pastor at Lake Murray Presbyterian Church. Today is a beautiful, cool Thursday, May 7th, here in Chapin, South Carolina. This is a Simply Stated, stated podcast as well as being live-streamed on Facebook. Today, I want to talk a little bit about worship. Um, recently, one of our elders, our, an elder on the worship committee, uh, made the point that it's very important that we celebrate communion as a church. And he wasn't saying we didn't need to be distant from each other, but it's important to have communion. And this was for the Monday Thursday service when we always celebrate communion. So this year, the Presbyterian Church in the, in the USA and Lake Murray Presbyterian did something new. We had virtual communion for the first time this year. That's not something our denomination or our congregation had ever done before. In the past, we would require a pastor, an elder, a deacon, officer of the church of some kind to go and celebrate communion with people who could not come into worship. Uh, so today I want to do a kind of semi-history lesson. Um, a little bit of this, frankly, is from my memory in a church history class during seminary. And there are a couple of reasonably trustworthy spots on the internet too. Um, but I'd like us to think about how technology has changed worship, because it certainly has done that, particularly in the last few hundred years. Um, and how, how, uh, how church culture has changed it well, as well. So when, when Christians celebrate the Lord's Supper, we use a common cup of wine. Uh, and the reason for this, Jesus was sitting with his disciples at the Passover meal, and when he gave us the Lord's Supper, he picked up a cup of wine and they shared it together. Um, and so that's been the ritual for the Christian church ever since. Except, of course, it isn't. Uh, that we, we have done things differently. So I'll tell you a little bit about this. In the, late, in the late half of the 19th century, people discovered germs. And as part of that, uh, we invented, also invented the mason jar. This jar, this is a ball jar, different company, but the principles the same, is filled, this jar is filled with incredibly delicious homemade strawberry jam. We made it uh, and canned it ourselves. And 200 years ago, that wouldn't have been possible. People didn't understand about germs or canning enough to be able to, to do this. Now, this is a kind of fuzzy bit of history, I have to admit. There was an industrialist, I think it honestly was Mr. Welch, uh, like the grape juice and the jelly, that Welch. Um, he was a devout Methodist, lived in Ohio, and he was in the canning business, as you would imagine, for jelly and for juice, Mr. Welch. Uh, and he was a devout uh, Methodist. He was in the canning business. And canning is all about the control and elimination of germs. So our devout Methodist, maybe it was Mr. Welch, was very successful. He commissioned a group of young men to travel about and to visit with various churches, usually with the ladies' group, and they would explain germ theory, what germs are, what they do, mostly understood to be negative at that time, um, and how we can get rid of them so we don't get sick. Uh, he, and so we, these young men would teach about hand-washing and the importance of soap and cleanliness. Uh, they would teach about canning as well. Uh, I imagine these young men, I don't, I don't have any reason for this, but I somehow managed them in straw boating hats or something. Uh, anyway, that's just my crazy head. They were, so they would teach about germ theory and washing up and keeping clean, and they would teach about canning. And also, they introduced in these churches the idea 
of little communion cups. At that time, of course, they were all glass. Now they tend to be plastic. Um, so that's where the idea of these, of using those little communion cups comes in. Uh, so for 1900 years, the church shared one cup, except in the medieval ages, the church, the, most folks only ate the bread. They didn't have the cup. See, there's another change. Anyway, then, until for 1900 years, we shared one cup. And then parts of the church sw switched to using a lot of little cups. Oh, so here's one more change that is in the middle of that. Before the invention of canning, it was basically impossible to use anything but wine at communion. And canning in the late 19th century made it possible to switch to grape juice. And many churches were opposed to alcohol because of the risks uh, that it involved socially. And before we pass them off as, you know, being prissy teetotalers, it's important to remember the, you know, the second half of the 19th century. Talk about temperance and alcohol was more of a whiskey before breakfast and daddy drank all the grocery money kind of issue. The temperance movement of the late 19th century was really a movement against uh, violence and squalor, poverty, uh, as much as it was anything else. So Protestants, many of them were teetotalers, and uh, they switched over to wine from grape, grape juice in the late 19th century. That's a change in a detail of how we worship God. It started in the Northeast actually using grape juice and these little cups, it probably, we're pretty sure the first place that happened was uh, in Cleveland, Ohio, at the Scoville Avenue Methodist Church. That's the first place we have record of it. Anyway, using those little cups uh, and grape juice. Lots of churches practice um, communion in this way. And lots of of churches find using those little cups to be really strange because they don't ever do it. Now, I took, I grew up when I was a kid. Uh, we had communion. Uh, we pre we and This is the only way I remember it. We would pass these big, heavy silver uh, patents. That's the word for the plate uh, you use in communion. Patent. Um, and it would have these terrible, dry little pieces of bread and we'd pass them along. Um, and then... Uh, we would pass these big, heavy plates with little juice cups in them. I remember them being glass. At some point, we switched to plastic. And for all I knew, that's how everybody did communion. Um, all the elders, who at that time were mostly men, they wore serious grown-up suits, uh, and they would pass these items along. And once we had communion, uh, we would we'd drink the juice and take the little cup, and there was a little a special rack in, in the pew uh, uh, with a circle in it, a place to put the communion cup. When I was maybe 13 years old, though, I spent the night at my buddy Chuck's house. Chuck was a Lutheran, so his parents got us up earlier than we wanted to, took us to church. And uh, his church, I don't know if they served communion every Sunday or just occasionally, but they were serving communion that Sunday, so it was time to take communion. And I learned something. Not everybody sits in place. This church, everybody gets up, and you go up, and you have communion kneeling at the front. That was new for me, but not the newest thing. You know, we got the little cup. They used the cup still, and I drank it, and it was real wine. And it was quite a you know, surprise to me. Uh, and Chuck thought that was hysterical. So, you know, we, we begin to learn churches practice lots of things in different ways, and the church practices communion in different ways. One more example. Laura and I spent a year in Kerala, India, uh, working with for the Church of South India. Now, the Church of South India was uh, essentially founded by the Apostle Thomas. 
uh, in the first century. And then they had a big reform uh, during the 19th and 20th century, uh, assisted by European, mostly European missionaries. And when we had communion, the women, when they went forward, it was after the men, men went first, boo, but that's how they do it. Um, the women would go forward, and you've probably seen an Indian sari. It's almost always a very colorful garment that wraps, a woman wraps around herself and over her shoulder. And they would take the cloth and cover their head when they came home forward for communion. That was just the practice. And when you went up, the minister had a chalice with uh, wine in it, and he had a teeny tiny spoon. And you would scoop some out, and you'd open your mouth, and he would flip it in and wipe it off. That was new to me too. So again, a different way of practicing communion. Uh, all of them faithful to the same Lord Jesus Christ, celebrating um, what he has done for us in his death and resurrection, but different practices. My point is this, is we, may, we do change our practice in Christian worship uh, over the centuries and in different places. And now, because of this coronavirus, worship is changing again. Uh, I, you know, uh, Two months ago, we didn't live, three months ago now, we didn't live stream worship. And I honestly can't imagine that we would say that we would stop because we have people who need to stay at home even when we can return to worship. They'll need to stay at home for health reasons and we want them to participate in worship. So I can't imagine we would give up and there is no plan to give up streaming. We want to continue with that. But what about the hymnals, right? You know, there's a point in time church didn't use hymnals. We didn't have a printing press four or 500 years ago. But now you pick up that hymn and you might think, who, who handled this before? I mean, if it was, if you come to the early service, it's been a week, that would be fine. But, you know, you kind of wonder who handled it. Or passing a, an offering plate, that's probably going the way to the dodo, friends. Um, now those screens up front with the words to what we're singing, you know, that, that kind of, uh, that's probably what we're going to need to do just to keep people safe and healthy. I suppose we could do what the church in Hungary does. Uh, when I visited there, everyone brought their own hymnal and their own Bible. You, you just went out and got one, you brought it to worship. Um, or let's think about one more thing, passing the peas. Here's the truth. Some people hate greeting others. Hate's a strong word. They really don't like greeting others in the middle of worship. You know, maybe they feel distracted from worship. Maybe they're just shy. Uh, maybe they simply don't care for change. And, you know, that that's not how they did it before. My home church uh, back in Lynchburg, they only uh, uh, added passing the peace within, la within the last couple of years. Of course, they greeted each other in the hall before or after worship, but now it's part of their worship practice um, during the middle of the service. And not everybody loves it. Uh, I miss it. I, I really do. I really miss it. And now, because of social distancing, you know, I can't get somebody close enough to me to cut this hair, much less to shake hands or hug a couple of hundred people at the back of a church door. I mean, let's face it, that, doesn't, that is not a good idea, even when it's safe for us to start um, meeting in person again. So here's another strange one I want you to think about. What about masks in worship, right? Ugh. This makes my glasses move around, but this is one my, my sister-in-law sent us uh, a couple of masks. Thanks so much, Heather. It was really sweet of you. Um, I can't imagine looking out from the pulpit and seeing people in hygiene masks. It will be weird. But as far as I'm able to tell, that's probably what we need to do. 
is wear masks, uh, you know, because it's going to diminish the germs that we share with other people. I don't know if it does anything to keep me safe, but uh, it keeps me from spreading whatever cooties, uh, you know, I have with others. Um, I recently learned in parts of Asia, I think it's Hong Kong and Singapore, uh, if you have a cough or a cold, you wear a mask out in public. It's just common manners. And I think about it this way. If some dude rolled up into worship at Lake Murray Presbyterian Church and he was wearing uh, shorts, let's say some cut-off jeans, let's go all in, cut-off jeans, flip-flops, and no shirt, I think it'd be pretty reasonable if our ushers came, caught up with him. Say, hey, can we offer you a T-shirt? Right? Like, what, that's just, we, we wear shirts in worship at our church. Funny thing, again, in South India, uh, we went to weddings and generally much older gentlemen, because this is a much older tradition, but they would come to a wedding uh, dressed in a, a sort of, it's not linen, but it looks like a very light colored, white colored uh, wrap around their waist and a towel on their shoulder and a, a peculiar, uh, unique cap that they wore and they wouldn't wear a shirt. It was like being in a tuxedo though. Uh, you know, that's not going to fly in Chapin. So um, similarly, you know, if somebody comes to worship, we're probably going to offer them a hygiene mask. I know that's kind of a weird comparison, t-shirt, hygiene mask, but I think it holds up today and these are strange times. So again, that's a change in our practice of worship. And it kind of relates to those little communion cups, like I said, because it's related to our experience and our understanding of hygiene. Um, so what does all this mean for us together as a congregation or your congregation? Um, you know, there are changes in the method of our worship. We worship one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there are things in our worship that we might think are fundamental, or we might think that everybody does them and that they're ordinary, but really they're peculiar to our, our time and our place. We don't share them with the whole church, or we don't share them in the exact same way. But here's the thing. The one, the person we worship is dependable and steady and regular. Our way of worship, even a way of worship that I love, it can sometimes just be a feature of time, a feature of place, even just preference, which doesn't mean that we don't have to, we, we have to stop liking it. Uh, we can continue it for that reason. And it may mean that that's the reason we have to give it up uh, for a particular time. Some things that give us joy and evoke awe and wonder in us in worship are really a matter of personal preference. But the one who, the person who evokes our awe and our wonder and our reverence, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that one doesn't change. We're in the process of changing our worship practices. So I want to say, let's be patient with each other and let's encourage each other. And for those of us who have to give up things that they like, they're all right to be, it's okay to be unhappy about that but not just dwell on that. So let's remember that it's the Holy Spirit and not our habits or preferences or customs that energize the worship of Jesus Christ. Well, it has been good to catch up with a few of you. I see Ken and James are here. If, uh, if you're watching this or you catch it uh, later online, please be sure to comment. Let me know who you're watching, if you, if you would. 
If you found this interesting, please share it with others. That actually helps our, our online ministry as well. So I encourage you to do that. At the very least, uh, pop in a like. Uh, that way I can know you're here. It's kind of encouraging, cooped up in this room, talking to myself. Uh, so I really appreciate appreciate seeing all of you. Love you. Let's. I'm going to have a prayer, and then we'll uh, wrap up. Heavenly Father, we're so glad you call us to worship you. And we pray that you would give us wisdom about how to shape and reshape that worship. We pray for wisdom on how to shape our lives as well, that we might give you glory and honor. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Bye-bye.